welcome to episode 24 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, I'm interviewing Simon Ettrick, who was the founding chair of the UK's Community of Research Software Engineering, or RSE, about software career path in academia. Hi, Simon. Thank you for being with us today. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so, so I'm Simon Ettrick. Uh, aside from my work with research software engineers, I'm also the deputy director of the Software Sustainability Institute, which was the first organization that really started to, to think about software's role in research. And I'm also a professor at the University of Southampton. Okay. Uh, what is your topic that you teach at the Southampton University? Ah, so I'm a, I'm a non-conventional academic in almost every single way. So I don't teach, I don't write papers. <laughs> I am a new breed of academic that, um, that, that worries about the, uh, the tools that other people use and, the, and the, the policies that other people implement, rather than having to do some of the more standard academic work. Okay, so you have, you have really forward-looking employers. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. They, they made me a professor. I'm going to say yes to that one. Um, yes, I do. They, they are forward-looking. Um, and they are, and they've seen the work that we're doing at the Institute and they're understanding the importance of that um, for the future of research, not just in the country, but, but you know, all around the world. And, um, and they've started to accept that there are positions for people in academia that aren't the conventional ones of, of lecturers and uh, people who write papers. Okay. Uh, can you elaborate on your transition from researching new types of compact and efficient lasers to your current research, which focuses on the research software community and with the aim of understanding the practice and demographic of this community? I can elaborate on that transition. It's, uh, I wish I could describe it as a planned transition, but it, it is not. Um, I, so I guess... Uh, I, I did my PhD in lasers because I just found them fascinating as a child. And um, then coming up to the end of my PhD, you know, I, I started seeing all these postdocs working in my university, and uh, some of them were as old as 40, and they were still working in the same area. And I just thought, I'm not sure I want to spend the next you know, 20 years of my life doing the same thing. So, um, so I got out for that reason and went into patent law and worked as an attorney for a few years. Because uh, I assumed that you know, that'd be really exciting. You get to work on lots of different areas, lots of different technologies, and I was absolutely right. A really exciting job, but um, the, the issue there was you're not creating anymore. You're just you're you're protecting other people's creations. So I found myself at something of a uh, sort of an impasse. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do with my life? Kind of position uh, in back in 2006, I think it was, and I thought I'll get a job. I'll just get an easy job that uh, I could spend some time thinking about you know, where my career is going, what do I want from life? And that thing happened, that happens to so many people where, you know, I got, I started a new job and then I just got really into it and I'm still here 13 years later doing, doing the work that I do. Okay. Uh, what, where was your PhD? At the University of Southampton at the Optoelectronics Research Center. Okay. When did you finish? Oh, uh, wow. Uh, 2004, I graduated But you know what it's like at the end of a PhD, it's, a, it's, it's not a hard boundary. I think 2003 is when I stopped working and started worrying about writing up. Okay. Yeah, I do have a soft boundary at the time right now as well. <laughs> it's, I think, I've, you know, I've done an awful lot of scary and difficult things in my career, but I still, I still think the PhD defense was the, 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 the most terrifying thing I've ever done. You, you know, you've got four years of your life invested into this thing. And uh, if it doesn't go well, that's it. Four years wasted. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's an exciting time. <laughs> yeah. Is there any relation between those two research areas? The funny thing here is that almost completely no. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, because at one point I was doing proper, you know, wet science in a clean room, making lasers, uh, starting from, you know, glass substrates and, and actually building a laser and then going into a lab laboratory and testing it. And, you know, and it was, well, I, I always thought, you know, it's not proper research unless you can kill yourself whilst doing it. And, and you know, and that was proper research. And I did almost kill myself a couple of times. Um, but, uh, One thing that did actually span the gap between what I do now and what I do then is that there used to be this when you were when you'd finished testing your lasers, you know, you, you, you need to do some calculations. And one of the things you needed to know was the number of modes in your cavity because I, I was making waveguide lasers. Okay, yeah. um, and the way you calculated this was there was this this 
program called modes.bat, and it was a batch file for running on Windows. And uh, everybody just used that. You'd put in the dimensions of your channel, you would you'd give it the refractive indices, and they would give you a number out, and literally just you know, on a command line, you know, three, two, you know, whatever the number was, and that was it. And there's a huge amount of work on this world-leading um, laser engineering organization that relies on this bit of software that nobody knew where it came from, nobody had seen the source code in living memory, and nobody knows how it worked. Uh, it was just it was designed by somebody in the past. That's as much information as we ever had. And everybody was fairly certain it worked, and it probably did. You know, I mean, it gives sensible answers. But when I look back on that now, I really think about some of the policy um, you know, sort of problems we have getting people to change the way they think about software because software has got this weird, it's both ubiquitous and not challenged because of that. So getting people to think about it as an important part of the research process is, is very difficult indeed. Yeah, being a bad file dates quite that to be really old. <laughs> <laughs> as am I. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you okay so you were making lasers from scratch from by lithography and growing crystals and all of that and glass substrates yeah yeah not not the uh, not the growing crystals but um but yeah i was doing lithography i mean starting off with a you know like a fist-sized bit of very pure glass doped with neodymium or terbium or something like that and um and then slicing it up polishing it creating the lasers the whole the whole thing you know running furnaces for months to to interfuse into crystals and yeah it felt like proper proper science okay good good yeah i can i can also kill myself with my research okay that's <laughs> good a, a 10 kilowatt power <laughs> electrical power source that could be used as a uh, um Yeah, that's that's dangerous. <laughs> High voltage power source, but yeah, yeah, it's good. Isn't it? And then you come into a computer science department where I work now. You know, and people spend their entire time. And I mean, their biggest risk is repetitive strain injury or maybe <laughs> falling off a chair. And you're like, this yeah. isn't science. <laughs> yeah, or worst case, Patrick can uh, not predict properly crack propagation in material, and then. Uh, if he rides a plane where he predicted that there would be wouldn't be crack propagation in his model, but anyway, it's really far <laughs> that's, really, that's really dark. That's that's worrying about other people's lives rather than your own. Yeah, okay. No, I'd probably just worry about my own. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would be your one-minute elevator pitch for the UK's Research Software Engineering Association? Um, for the association, so I would say. Uh, I could probably do it in less than a minute. Um, basically, every, we all understand the importance of research. 70% of research relies on software. Any research economy that doesn't invest in it, the people who make that software is, is, is going to be in trouble. Um, so you need both uh, policies to support research software engineers and an, an association to bring them together into a community. Okay. Since 13 years, how have you seen the transition from, because as I see it, uh, software is more and more important. You're well aware of that in research and there's like a growing um, interest at least for to, to support it. Um, how that interest evolved over time for, for, for funding organization? Uh, so it's really interesting. Over the 13 years, it's quite interesting because uh, when I first joined, I was working. I was working at the University of Southampton still, but for a different organization that that cared about grid middleware. You know, grid being like the, the academic precursor to cloud, I guess. Um, and what we saw was that lots and lots of different projects were recognizing the importance of software. Um, they, you know, they, they could see that it was important to the generation of their results. And they were recognizing the importance of people who developed software. But it kind of, there was this like weird dichotomy that formed in their mind where they were kind of like, software is really important, but it's not important in an academic sense. And, 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 and I found that really really strange to, to, to witness. And in fact, it was, it was thinking about that that led you know, our director to, um, to put together the first ever bid for the Software Sustainability Institute. You know, let's break down these barriers between um, what academics see as being important to research and, and what we see as absolutely being important to academics. And I remember when we were first recruiting to get what would become research software engineers when, when the name was coined, you know, we got very few people applying because they were, we were applying for a job where come work in a university environment, 
get a you know a third of the salary you'd get in industry and have career progression uh, you know possibilities of basically zero but still come and join come and apply for that job and so we've got very few people applying and over the years um, you know we've been lobbying really hard we've been campaigning to try and support both software and the people who write it and we've seen a growing acceptance and funnily funders uh, in the UK at least were the first people to really get it and they started asking us more and more to generate numbers for them. So when we first set up the Institute, one of the things that used to like strike fear into my very soul was people would say, so how much software is out there in the research community? How much do we rely on software? And nobody had, nobody had a figure for that. And it's one of those questions that is impossible to answer in some ways. Um, You go and ask a bunch of computer scientists how much much software is in the research community and they will spend the next three months arguing about what software is rather than just getting on with answering the question. So, so, you know, that's when that's when the sort of social science edge comes in and you start, you know, taking these fuzzy boundaries and drawing hard lines around them. We we ended up running a a survey over 15 Russell Group, you know, research intensive universities in the UK, uh, interviewed hundreds of uh, researchers and and finally got these figures. You know, 92% of researchers use research software, Uh, 69% rely on it for the generation of results. It's fundamental to their research and things like 56% uh, have no training. So we started feeding these back to the to the, uh, the funders. And because we've always followed sort of open science practices, you know, we publish our data, we publish our analysis code, people started to, to rely on those results. And and that first, we turned the funders and they seemed to be, they got, they got inside because they could see that, you know, a lot of their investment was being put at risk because they weren't supporting the, uh, the software, the, the software that was being used in research. And then more and more policymakers started to get inside and people started asking us to help them write policy that would support researchers in their use of software. And then universities started caring about it. The whole research software engineer thing went crazy. And we ended up with groups all across the UK. Um, so, yeah, we're now in a situation where, and it is quite a pertinent question because um, on Tuesday, Wednesday last week, the, the 10-year roadmap for UKRI, which is the, the big no, government funder in the UK, funds across all different domains that's come out and for the first time to my knowledge in such a high profile document there's half a page on software and skills and it's talking about all of the things that we care about and it's uh, to guide uk governmental um, strategy over the next 10 years so yeah we've come a long way yeah and in the survey you sent to analyze the, how much research software was important, did you provide a definition of what was research software? Because you told like software scientists will have a definition of like, is it distributed? Is it scripting? Are you the only one using? Like there's plenty of criteria you could use, but have you provided those criteria or you let the user decide upon themselves what would be their criteria? Uh, we said it was any software that you use in your research to generate a result which you later intend to appear in a publication. And that includes anything from a couple of lines script to a fully-fledged software uh, package. Okay, so pretty broad definition. So, yeah, I think we even added a, di- uh, uh, a proviso saying it's not <laughs> you know, using Word to write up a paper, using Google to search for papers or publications. Okay. So do you think that uh, employees at re- the Research Software Engineering Association, like the RSC, are more like, um, because you talked about a software engineer, uh, are they like in support of specific piece of software, in support of a researcher doing a development, or are they themselves doing development for other researcher? What is their role exactly as employee? So... Um what happens when you introduce a new concept into into the world, especially into the re- in the academic world? You know, I always say you know academia attracts two types of people: the people who are attracted by the love of discovery and the people who are attracted by the love of argument, right? Um, so when you, you you create this new thing, people come along and they want you to draw boundaries around everything. They're kind of like, well, is this a research software engineer? Is this a researcher? You know, where's the line? Uh, and I have resisted that every single turn because research software engineer isn't a job. No, it's an A job. It's a suite of different jobs. You get research software engineers working for IT departments within universities, and they'll work on 
number of different projects for different researchers, you know, maybe doing really simple things, um, and just and just supporting the researcher in the soft with the software they've developed themselves. You get research software engineers who are working with researchers from the very beginning of a project and are bringing domain knowledge, you know, in like you know, fully fledged detailed domain knowledge along with uh, a sort of intimate understanding of software engineering and designing things from the ground up and then supporting that thing you know, potentially for decades to come. And you get a bunch of people in between though, who are doing both kind of projects. You get research software engineers who work for big RSE you know, pooled groups you know, that work for a university. You get uh, research software engineers who work for research institutes. You get them embedded in research projects, small teams, big teams, everything in between. So I always kind of resist trying to put a boundary on it. But when really, really, really pushed, I give a very fuzzy definition, which is I say it's somebody working in working in academia, using their knowledge of both research and software engineering to to support um, to advance research. Okay, so there's still a boundary between proper researchers and software engineers for research. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a boundary. I'd say there's a spectrum. You know, you get you get, we get we've often talked about people we call researcher developers who are the kind of the people who do know a lot of software engineering and have a research interest, but they still are they're very much on the academic career path. You know, they, they, they want to become a professor. They want to they they want to do teaching. They want to follow the sort of conventional role. And then you know we have research software engineers who are more over to the software engineering side. So I, I always in my presentations I have a spectrum that I put up with re pure research at one side, pure software engineering at the other, and then I talk about all these different roles that are across that spectrum. And I think that's a really useful way of looking at it because as soon as you, you know, the reason that we got into this situation where we were completely overlooking this massive contribution that people were making to research by working on software was because there had been people in the past who drawn hard boundaries around people who are important and people who are not important. Uh, I don't want to repeat that mistake. It's a good way to define it as a spectrum instead of fixed definition with boundaries and all of that. Yeah, I like that. Do you know how many RSC there is in UK? About approximately? Approximately. Uh, so we think so. There are two hundred and ten thousand people employed in research uh, contracts, and we think there are probably about eight thousand people doing research software engineering. Um, and that is based on an analysis of a website called Jobs.ac.uk, which is it's the de facto jobs website for academics. Um, we are working on refining those numbers because that was a very hurried study. Um, and we are doing a more, uh, more in detail and hope to release the results later on this year. So I, but I, I think around about 8,000 seems like the right kind of number. Okay. I'll do a little detour to my question. Living in the UK, you're probably going to be affected by the political situation at the moment where the UK is going to leave, or maybe is not, or is is or isn't going to leave uh, the European Union. How do you see the research community reacting to that? Uh, do you feel uh, there is preparation for that? Uh, or it's going to be like everyone run for their life? Or how do you think it's going to turn out? Especially for research or NRSE. Uh, so soon after the Brexit vote, I can't remember which politician it was that said, but said, you know, it's not like it's going to become some post-apocalyptic wasteland, right? And I thought we've gone from pre the Brexit vote with people saying it's going to be much better for us outside the European Union to saying, you know, it's not going to be like Mad Max. We're not going to be killing each other and, and all these other things, uh, you know, fighting over you know, tin of peas. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't know I was going to ask my political questions, but, but um, I, I don't think, yeah, the, the country isn't very well prepared. That's, that's, that's obvious from the current political situation. And, uh, and my colors are very much that we are far, far better off within the European Union. Uh, and I think that most people in the research community would agree with that not just because of things like funding from the EU, but also because many of our, our you know, research relationships are with people, our closest neighbors, and most of them are in Europe. It's nuts, absolutely nuts. Yeah, collaboration and software has no boundary. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. 
Yeah. When was the Research Software Engineering Association founded? Uh, the association was founded in 2013, I think in January 2013. Okay. Uh, and re in regard to the association, is there a list of members? Can you become a member? Is there any fee attached? Uh, do you have to live in the UK to be a member? Or is there, is there such, a, such a status? <laughs> there's, a, there's always a social status with being uh, part of the research software engineering community. Um, so there's a separation here, and it all comes down to the history of research software engineering uh, and the way that the community has grown. So it started off from one of our events, the Collaborations Workshop in 2012, where it first, the role first got named. And then we had a workshop in 2013 to like bring people together, saying, you know, research software engineering, is this a thing? Do people... Do people care about it? Do they, do they um, associate with it? Um, at that workshop, we said, you know, should we set up some organization to represent your views as a community? It's a unanimous um, vote for yes. Then it was actually January 2014 when we, we launched the community. We had 150 people sign up on the first sort of week or two. And I mean, I was hoping to get to maybe a couple of hundred people after a year. So that's when we first thought, oh, this is this is going to be this is going to be quite important. Then over that time, we set we set up the association as an informal association because we didn't know whether this community was going to run for a long time, it how, how how big it was going to be, or anything like that. And it has just grown steadily ever since that time. And then, oh, let's sometime around about the, the, the sort of start 2018, we started realizing that an informal association just wasn't enough. We needed to be able to hold funds. We needed to be able to employ staff. Um, so then we, we started the process of converting into a, into a proper society. So now the Research Software Engineering Association is actually being surpassed by the Society of Research Software Engineering. It's the, it was the precursor. And now the society is the thing that people are joining. And for that... The, there is a £20 fee to become a member. We kept that really low because most research software engineers, especially junior ones, don't have access to their own funds. You don't have to be a UK sort of resident to become a member. Anybody can become a member. But there's a slight proviso on that, that, that the way our membership um, fee is taken actually requires you to have a UK bank account. So we are working on changing that. Is there any uh, branches outside of uh, UK in Europe, worldwide, in other countries? Well, that, that was the, the thing that really surprised me. Um, so we started running a conference back in 2016 and we thought, you know, we'd gotten enough, there was enough momentum and we had over a thousand members by that point in the association. And, and um, we thought, well, let's run a conference, get everybody together. And with 5,000 pounds seed fund funding that we got from the EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, we started this conference. We had like 230 people turned up to the first one from 16 different countries around the world and I, I'm kind of like okay this is <laughs> this is again it's bigger than I expected um, and at that conference uh, a bunch of people from Germany got together and they said you know we need this in our country and they, they talked to us and you know, gave them some support and they went off and they set up the um, DRSE you know, the German RSE Association and then by the next year the, the Dutch RSE Association NLRSE had been set up And then it was only a couple of years later that we had the, Nor uh, the Nordic countries join together and, and had their association. Now we've got Australia, New Zealand, we've got the US um, RSE that launched a couple of years ago and has just recently sort of really claimed, like, I've, I've been watching some of their, their tweets and their membership numbers are really rapidly increasing. So I'm quite excited about what's going to happen in the US. So... This thing that started in the UK is just like growing around the world. And, I, and, it, and it all sort of, there's, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. And I really get that feeling with RSE. Uh, people see it, they, they understand that it's important. There are a lot of research software engineers who see the, 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 the effects it can have on their career and, the, and on advancing research. And they, and they want to either sign up or they want to set up an association. And it's fantastic. Are these all of these organizations? They're all independent. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're all independent, but we all keep in touch. Um, so I try to make sure it's one of those difficult things, you know, because we don't want to have really an international organization that sort of presides over all the the local um, local organizations. But equally, we don't want to 
duplicate effort. We don't want to end up competing for members or, or anything like that. So, so I try to keep a, a good amount of communication going across all of the different RSC associations. Um, last year, we had a, an international RSC leaders meeting and, and lots of the people who are from those different associations came and it was really good. And uh, we are looking at things like setting up an international RSU conference where all of the different associations you know, will contribute some effort and to, to, to running it. And that could then move around the country so people don't have to keep traveling to the UK. Yeah. Just local in UK, is it a single organization or is there like local chapters in different places or is it uh, managed globally for the whole of UK? In academia, there are rarely a sort of a strict command and control structure of management, right? Um, so what we have is we have the society, and that now has responsibility for the conference, for membership, for workshops that we run, and any sort of work that we do on supporting policymakers. Then we have we are starting to see regional organisations set up. So we have. RS London and Southeast, which takes in the sort of London and Southeast UK universities um, and joins them together so that they can meet more regularly and you know, focus on more local sort of subjects of interest. Um, and then, of course, we have RSE groups, which is this new phenomenon where you pool RSEs into a single group and then those RSEs work for uh, researchers across a particular organization, a particular university. And we've seen The first one was set up in 2013 at UCL, and there are now um, RSE groups at 28 universities across the UK, which is fantastic. And each one of those usually has some form of community around it. So there's a very local um, sort of research software community. There's a couple of the, the, the regional ones are starting off, and then we have the national uh, community as well. Okay. How many conferences were organized? And is there like kind of local meetups that are organized as well? Uh, yeah, so, so the local meetups, the big thing that we're seeing there is the sort of research software communities. So that is, they're, they're run by the RSE groups usually, um, not always, and they bring together RSEs and researchers who care about software. Most of them focus on sort of knowledge transfer and uh, also just, you know, it's a bit like a knitting circle, you know, it's somewhere to get together and sort of you know, really moan about the difficulties of developing software within an academic environment. And uh, I don't think you can overlook the importance of that. It's a very useful thing to have. And then we, I run one here at the University of Southampton. Uh, and, you know, we have like over 100 people coming to the events because it's, it's something that appeals to a lot of people. And that's, uh, people have similar experiences at their groups across the UK. From discussions we had during previous interviews, uh, it seems that working on research software is often not appropriately rewarded, at least academically, and uh, not often directly aligned with the metrics used by funding agencies, such as, for example, number of publications or their impact factor. In your opinion, what should be done to promote the increase of impact of the credits you get for publishing research code for researchers that also do Uh, software uh, research right so i mean that is that's very much the nub of the uh, issue <laughs> if i could answer that question in a couple of sentences i would be writing it down and submitting it to uk funding make funders and policymakers. um I, th i think the thing is yeah software has not been recognized uh, and it's not just software you know data um there are other there are other areas that we're coming across as you know that are vital to research but haven't conventionally been rewarded uh, in the standard academic structure of a university. Um, and it's because of this, this almost fetishization of publications as the way to measure the impact of a researcher. And I think, I mean, that's the thing that we have to change. Publication, I, I always say, I say, I always say that. You know, I think that the The covenant into which researchers enter with taxpayers is a beautiful thing. You know, taxpayers provide money to conduct researchers through conduct research, and researchers generate knowledge which they then make freely available, bar a few problems with certain journals, freely available to the outside world. And I think that's an amazing thing. But it's presented universities that you know don't have a great deal of money for management of people. Um, it's presented universities with this very nicely hard boundary countable metric to base success upon. And they have gone for it wholeheartedly and use it you know, above all other things. 
Yeah, they need they want metric to measure and counting publication or impact factor is something easy. So they went for that, but yeah, there's so many other things that should be done instead. Yeah, and and the problem is I don't think those things will be easily countable metrics. You know, um, they will be things like looking at the the contribution a person has made to advancing a project based on talking to the people who are affected by that project. And they may, that might be you know, just like the project leader, or it might be the project, the, the, the community, or you'll be, you know, looking at, you know, um, other ways that success has been noted. So when, you know, software is being cited within papers or when it's being mentioned on, you know, news items that are coming out about research that's been conducted, uh, there, it will be a mosaic approach to measuring success of people, which is why, I mean, you will often when you hear these, you know, how do you can, how do you sort of measure the the success of software? People will say, well, not downloads, you know, because because when looking at software, you know, most of these policymakers go, well, downloads they're countable, they're easily to count. Why don't we count downloads? And, but they're completely inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, I try to stay away from giving suggestions of particular things that can be counted and measured and say that, you know, you just have to look at the person and the contribution that person has made. And it will require good management to understand whether that is better or worse than the contribution that somebody else has made. So we'll switch to the, top, the broader topic of FLAS for a moment. In the Research Software Engineering Association or the society, is FLAS the norm or the exceptions within the projects? Like, are all the projects um, in there FLAS related or is there some code restrictions sometimes on specific parts that are being researched? So uh, the thing I find about software licenses within academia is there's a glorious amount of freedom often because there's very little knowledge of, of you know, within central university about what it means. Um, so I think FLOSS does tend to chime rather well with the research software engineering community. There are people who are behind the idea of open source software. So we do see a lot of, of, of FLOSS licenses. Um, there are times when there are commercial sensitivities, you know, you're asked to work on something that has already been commercialized or the university has good and thinks it has good prospects to be commercialized and you have to work on that. But I think there are actually very, very few and far between the vast majority of it is open source. And, and it's basically down to the point that a lot of academic software is developed to support a very small minority of researchers looking at a particular phenomenon that, you know, the, the market size is tiny. So if you if you try to sell your software to make your money back, you're going to have to, you know, be selling it for millions of pounds, or you're just going to have to accept that there's a better model to use the open source model. Look for look for a bit more transparency. Maybe if you're lucky, get some code contributors, and uh, and and that's that's the more appropriate model for a significant amount of research, I would say. Yeah, and to be frank, open source and uh, FLAS do not prevent commercial use. Absolutely not. No, there's a number of you know, very, very successful projects um, that um, use open source software and have monetized it in different ways. Um, so I should have been a bit clearer there when I say when they're looking to commercialize, universities are looking to usually use the conventional proprietary software, closed source, licensed, and you buy a license model. Yeah, yeah. I understand the point of view of universities, but that is quite of a reductive uh, view of things. Like opening stuff doesn't preclude you from making money, selling it, or who knows which other ways of making money. You can make money with Floss. So I find it just a negative for the, the whole society, for society as a whole, that some people prefer like to close the, the results of research and not opening up to, 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 to the public. Mm. Personally, I'm, I'm against that. And, and I, I very much think that, you know, taxpayers fund our work. So all, everything we do should be open for anybody to see whether they happen to be associated with the university or they're just, you know, just interested. Um, and I think the benefit to society is significant from doing that just because it leads to better research. It leads to more scrutiny. And it, and, and it also opens the way for more people to be interested who are interested in a subject area to enter it. So, yeah, I'm absolutely philosophically 
on side with you on that one. I should have been clearer when I said about open source and uh, and proprietary. And uh, yeah, I'm, I agree. You can make you, lots of successful projects make money out of open source software. No problem. Do you think that Floss helps in providing better and more sustainable fundamental research software? That's a difficult one. So yeah, I, I my, my gut feeling that is it, it does because obviously it's transparent. So people can review whether the, the software they're using um, works as they expect it to work. And I also think because the Floss philosophy tends to you know, want to attract in contributors, then you get more eyes on a piece of code. So you're more likely to, to, to notice bugs or errors. And you're also likely to have, bring in new experience. So things that you think practices you're following that you think are you know suitable or best practices might be completely incorrect. And that might be because like the vast majority of people in research, you haven't had training in software engineering. So bringing in these extra people, uh, I, I think it's always, it's, it's always a good thing for software. So yeah, I definitely think that floss is a good philosophy um, for providing better, more sustainable software. However, I have to say, because the, the Software Sustainability Institute does not take a side on, on this debate, that, that you can have other, other good software also exists. Yeah, but having a, a piece of software being floss means over time coding practices that are improving, that are modified, uh, could get into the project. The project is not uh, tied to someone directly when that person loses interest, the project dies anything open source is kind of in the public domain forever so it could be picked up in the future yeah i, I agree with that in principle um there are issues though because especially in academia because there's so little funding and support for software uh, development that what you tend to end up with is an awful lot of you know, bus factor one projects Um, and that is through no fault of the researchers or the research software engineers own. It's to do with the way that the, the paucity of, of software funding within within academia. I mean, we find people all the time who've got locked into supporting something and it's their baby, you know, so they want they, they, they don't want it to to you know, go unsupported. But at the same time, they find that they're investing more and more of their life into into doing this bit of software that's being used by lots of other people to support their research. And um, one of the things that we really don't have in academia, and it has to come in, is support for taking those bits of software and providing some software engineering support for these people, because ultimately they're they're making a huge impact within the research community. If you'd done that through other means, then you'd be you'd be you know, lauded, uh, you know. But but if you're doing it with software, you tend to be ignored. Yeah, like an example of that is Gmesh. Uh, with Christophe Guzain, uh, like he's still developing, he's taking contribution from outside, but he's one of the main developers. He started a project with another colleague back then, and yeah, he's still involved in there. So it, it, at least it's, there's a buzz factor of more than one with that project, but still, yeah, I see what you mean by supporting a single researcher having to provide support for a piece of code and feeling. Um, obliged to provide support and to to maintain that piece of code it could become a burden over a long period of time absolutely but you see that's not the fault of floss that's the fault of academic funding for software <laughs> so so i think floss comes in and, and it's a good solution but it, we need more than just that we need to be looking at the way that we support software in academia and we need to be changing it Do you think that the current curriculum of researchers prepare them well enough for a world in which software is becoming more and more ingrained within research? <laughs> um, are you saying that with a straight face? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. That's, uh, yeah, no, no, really. That, that's, I, I love questions where you can just give a very strong answer. Nope, <laughs> that should be it. When you, when you look at the way the researchers, especially when you look at undergraduate courses, I mean, you get, you do get programming, but that varies massively dependent on the subject area. And when you look at the importance of software in research, it does still vary a tiny amount across the research domain, but it's almost always, you know, in the high 90s. Um, I did a survey of, of researchers here at the University of Southampton. It's the first one where I've been able to get enough data from one organization where I can start to segment it, interestingly. And um, 95% of researchers relied on software, they said. 
when I segmented it over the different faculties, all of the faculties were over 90. I think social sciences was at 92, and then the other ones were all at sort of 98, 99, apart from arts and humanities, which was at 67%. Right. So, but undergraduate courses, the amount of training varies massively. But when it comes to the research, they all, they all agree that software is very, very important. And the kind of training you get as an undergraduate as well, it's it's generally programming, you know. It's like this is how to use the syntax of this particular language. I hadn't heard about basic basic concepts like version control until I was very much in, in this community already. Uh, and when I talk to, I still go, I still go and hang around with my my laser engineering and, and physics um, friends, and then you know we go down the pub and we discuss discuss issues of the day and uh, unit testing. No, that doesn't come up. <laughs> no, so so. No, the, the quality of teaching is very poor, and that's in undergraduate. When you look at postgraduate, then you start to see people are starting to you know, care about it more and more, at least you know, from the sort of providing short courses. You know, Software Carpentry has done amazing work, uh, really increasing the exposure of researchers to basic software engineering techniques. Uh, and we are seeing uptake in more and more universities, and especially here in the UK where the university has an RSE group. They're, they're pushing that kind of training. But... Most researchers, I hate to say, I think enter the world of, of, of research. They start their PhD and their supervisor says, great, get, get, to, your, get to developing some software. And they are starting basically from scratch. And that's a terrible situation. Yeah. Unprepared and uh, not ready for that situation. Yeah, that's, that's my point of view as well. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I just think it's really odd that you know, software is this incredibly widely used tool and, you know, if, if I went into a clean room at the start of my PhD and, and just started just randomly hacking about trying to make a laser, you know, people would think I was crazy. But you do the same thing with software and people are, yeah, that's fine. That's kind of that's part of the course. We're ex that's exactly what we expect. I, I don't understand why software is this sort of second class citizen uh, within the research community. And I say that and I've been lucky because during my uh, undergrad studies, I was in a student group uh, who were making uh, AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle. And like there, there was a lot of software engineering involved in there because I, I'm in mechanical engineering. So I would have, wouldn't have known about software revision, uh, version control and all of that, like SVN and all of that back then. I, I wouldn't have known, known about that not being in contact with those people back then so i got some come some concept back then that are that i can apply now uh within my projects at least but otherwise yeah it's uh, it's a it's a huge uh, step going from almost no background to okay you need to 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 do software <laughs> the development or to, to to make scripts to analyze your data and a lot of that like it's I feel we're unprepared. Absolutely. I mean, learning software engineering for producing reliable results for your research shouldn't be like roulette. You know, it shouldn't just matter. You know, just luck at the draw which project you happen to land in, whether they have somebody who has already done this sort of groundwork to understand how to develop software reliably. It should be part of the structure that every undergraduate and postgraduate goes through. And it's, it's vital in the world of work, you know. It's vital in just day-to-day -day life, I find. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say that, I guess. But, but you know, more and more frequently, I just think, oh, well, I could just write a quick script to sort this little life problem I'm having out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a useful thing for everybody to know a bit of. Yeah. Do you think that researchers care about the code and data that they produce and the license that they choose for, for those? And do you think... And how do you... How should we convince, if they don't care, uh, how should we convince them to care about that? Well, it's a, again, it's a, it's a spectrum answer, isn't it? Yeah, some researchers you know, desperately care about the code that they produce and are you know, experts in the way that they're going to license it. And some just totally care about the code, see it as a disposable thing that generates a result so they can get publication. And licensing is kind of unimportant because why would you need to license something you're just going to throw away? So it's it's not about convincing researchers to care about code. It's not about convincing them to license their code. It's about making more of them care, more of them license their code. Now, I think the way you do that is by you you, you show the connection between the software they're writing and the the reliability of their results. 
you know, and you can try and scare them away with a good few good couple of um, stories about you know retractions and things like that. But but I think it works better if you're on more on the positive side and you show that following good practices saves you time, saves you energy, saves you boredom for repetition repetitive tasks, and um, you make that case. And then I think with the licensing issue, it's hard to get people interested in licensing. Certainly, researchers should take more of an more interest in it, but I think that should also be pushed on to the people who are supporting researchers from IP and legal departments. They should be helping them more because when I've worked with researchers who are looking to license their code, they basically just want an answer. They, you know, I've got these requirements. Which license do I use? I looked online and there are like thousands to choose from, and I don't know what the community uses. So as soon as you say, "Oh, it looks like a BSD would be good for you," then they just they're like, "Yep, yeah, that's great. We'll use that." You know, so they know it's important. They just need a little bit of help to choose something that works for them. Yeah, uh, we had an interview especially about that. Like I think it's episode seven about software license for research, and. Uh, Yeah, if our listeners want more information, they can listen to that episode. Uh, we had some um, pretty knowledgeable interviewees about uh, software license, especially. We're almost done with the interview, and we'll proceed with some of our classic quick questions. Uh, in recent year, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? <laughs> uh, I'd say I'd probably say Higgs boson. I think that was one that I, I, I just love the fact that you know. Theory predicted the the, the particles' um, existence like well, a couple of decades before they had the technology to actually prove that it, that it was real. Um, and I love that connection. I adored quantum um, mechanics when I was uh, an undergraduate. I was terrible, absolutely terrible at it. But I, I thought it was a fascinating subject area. So, so I liked the way that that led on to you know onto, is used in particle physics. So yeah, Higgs boson I think probably would be the one that for me. Okay. Maybe LIGO. Maybe no, maybe gravity. No, no, no. Higgs boson. <laughs> <laughs> L- LIGO is too much of a common answer. Like we, we had a stretch of maybe like five person in a row answering LIGO. So. Oh, really? Really? But, okay. So, um, but the, I, I should, well, I should really answer. I should really answer for a software related one as well. And then I would go for the, um, the image of the black hole that came out just this year, I believe. Uh, you know, they, they've got, huge i mean i love the fact this massive set of like physical infrastructure recording data and it takes somebody sitting with like and they were using scipy and numpy and all manner of things and then they plotted it in matplotlib you know and then you get an image that captures the the imagination of the entire world you know that is a beautiful bit of research it might not be the biggest thing that will change you know the understanding of our of our universe but it but it really captured the excitement and the joy of science. Yeah, and it took years and years and years of planning and measuring and capturing data to, to obtain that image. It's a, it's a huge feat. Yeah, absolutely. What is your favorite text processing tool? <laughs> you mean text? It depends on you mean like said and things like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, yeah, it could be. It could be if you're okay. masochist. I don't know. Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, what do you mean by text processing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I know exactly. That it could be. That's a broad area. Yeah, exactly. We want to keep it as general as possible. <laughs> <laughs> text processing too. So, I it could go from LaTeX to Ed to Word to uh, I don't know oh, okay, butterflies okay. and. Uh... <laughs> I'm going to change it into what's your favorite text editing tool, and I'm going to say PyCharm. Okay, fair answer. <laughs> Is there a topic in science about which you recently changed your mind about? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, they say, you should change your mind. If you don't change your mind once in a while, you should check your pulse to see if you're dead. Um, And I, I tell you what, so like that actually get, gets back to the question you were asking me earlier on. They, they caught me on the back foot when you started asking me about my European politics. Um, but I used to always say that the curriculum should be changed for, for primary schools, you know, young kids from some five upwards, um, so that everybody has science, uh, more important, a more thorough science training from, from, uh, from the ages of five and up. But I'm now, I've changed my mind, and it's going to be a weird one for a scientist to say, but I don't think that's the most important thing anymore. I think looking at our current political 
environment, I think the most important thing is uh, so maybe some rationality training, some evidence-based decision-making training. That's that's the most important thing to teach to teach children. And critical thinking. Yeah, critical thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything else we forgot to ask you about that we should have known to ask you about, or anything else you would like to share with us? Um, no, no. I think that was a that was a very thorough interview. Okay, thanks. So that will conclude our question for you, Simon. Uh, thank you for your time in this interview. For our listeners, what are the best way to contact you? Oh, thank you very much. It was, it was, that was thoroughly enjoyable. And the best way to contact me is to contact me through Twitter. I'm on SGH5000. Okay, I will include that in the, the show notes. Thanks. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore Debras or both of us at Philosopher Science. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, or your preferred podcast application, where you can also subscribe to our RSS feed to receive new episodes on the first Wednesday of every month. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues or by sending us comments. Our website is located at philosopherscience.com, where you can find all of our contact information and a link to our GitHub page to submit subject ideas for future episodes. On our website, you will also find show notes with complementary links, our RSS feed for episodes in MP3 and OGG formats, and you will be able to download or listen to all of our previous episodes. This is our last episode for 2019. We wish you all pleasant holidays. We hope that we will see you all in our next episode in 2020 which will cover the FreeCAD software. Bye. Bye.